If you're new to the church also, we've been reading through the book of Genesis, five chapters a week. It was a challenge we started the year with. Read five chapters a week, Monday through Friday, and then we'll, we'll preach something out of that passage that you've read on Sunday. We've been doing that for the last two months. Well, this week we've read a lot about Joseph, and yet there's one chapter in the story that's just, just kind of stood out like a sore thumb, chapter 38. And let me tell you a little bit about, about Joseph. Joseph is, was the 11th son of a man named Jacob. Jacob, we learned last week, received a new name. His new name is Israel. So Jacob has 11 sons. Joseph was his only son at that time through his wife that he really loved, named Rachel. Now, for a long period, Rachel couldn't bear children, so he had children through other women. But the one son he had through Rachel is, jo- is Joseph. And then Rachel becomes pregnant again gives birth to another child they named Benjamin, and then she dies from the pregnancy. She dies during delivery. So, so he has two children now through his wife, Rachel. Over the course of time, he remarries, and he's got these 12 boys and at least one girl we know. Her name's Dinah, and Joseph is his favorite. Joseph is the preferred son of Israel, and he knows all about preferred children because his dad preferred Esau and his mom preferred him. And they grew up in this home with this kind of dysfunctional relationship. So he favors Joseph, makes this multicolored robe, presents it to him. It's a robe that signifies royalty. This is my favorite son. He wasn't hiding it at all that this was the one he had his eye on. And so when the brothers are out working the field, he sends Joseph out to check on them. So obviously he's not there working with the brothers. He goes out, checks on them, comes back, tattles on them to his father, saying they're not acting well. And Joseph gets his reputation as the spoiled kid. And then to top it off, he has these crazy dreams. One of them is that he's out in the field gathering sheaves, gathering grain and tying them in sheaves, and his stands tall, but the brother's sheaves all bow to his. And they don't like that. They don't like the implications of that, that that someday they're going to bow before him. They ain't going to happen. And then he has another dream of, of stars that bow down to him. Not only the stars, but the sun and the moon, signifying even his parents will bow down to him. And even Israel himself is saying, hey, that's... That's a little bold, Joseph, but in the back of his mind, he's thinking, that, but there might be some truth to this someday. Now, one day, Joseph is sent out into the field to check on his brothers, and they're up way north, I mean, miles north uh, with the flocks, getting them to a pasture where they can be fed, and it, it takes a long time to get up there, but the time he finally arrives, his brothers want to kill him, and they plot to murder Joseph, but Reuben uh, Reuben steps up, and because of this, you need to know, Reuben's heroism in this, they named a sandwich after him, okay? <laughs> Reuben steps in and says, let's not kill him, let's throw him into a pit. And his intention was someday he'll come back and he'll, he'll pull Joseph out and bring him back home to his father. But while Reuben is away, we don't know, he's, he's not on the scene at the moment, a, a traveling band of Ishmaelites comes through, and they're traitors, and Judah... One of the brothers has this bright idea. Hey, hey, let's not kill him. Let's sell him. We can get money for this guy. Let's, let's cash in on him. So they sell him for 20 um, silver shekels to these traders that are passing through. And by the time Reuben comes back and discovers this, he's distraught. I mean, what are we going to tell dad? So they took the robe that they'd stripped off of Joseph, dipped it in goat's blood, took it home and showed it to their father and said, oh, bad news, dad. Joseph got attacked by animals and they devoured him. And... and Israel could not believe the news he heard. He was so broken. He wept and wailed. They tried to comfort him. He would have nothing to do with it. He said, I'm going to take this grief to my grave. My special son is gone. And, and Israel, who was born with the name Jacob, Jacob the deceiver, who practiced trickery most of his life, is tricked by his own sons. 
He's fooled by them. Ever hear the, the statement, an apple doesn't fall far from the tree? My experience has been nuts don't fall far from the tree either. Okay? So he's got crazy kids, and they're just like their dad. And so the story then um, stops right there, just stops. And then there's a story about the brother Judah. And you wonder, like, the story of Judah is not a real good story. It's a pretty objectionable story. It's kind of like late night TV story. Why is that story thrown right in the middle of the story of Joseph? And, And I believe it's for a number of reasons. The biggest being this. God is trying to contrast Judah with Joseph. See, Judah is not the good brother. Judah is a lot like Judas because he betrayed his brother for pieces of silver. Just like Judas betrayed Jesus for the money. Without more of the money than the relationship with the person. But, but then you look at Joseph. It, many people have compared Joseph to a Jesus figure because there's so many similarities between Joseph and Jesus. For example, both were the beloved son of the father. Both had this, this prophecy or this dream that others would, would come and bow before them. Uh, Joseph uh, and Jesus both um, withstood temptation. Both were falsely accused and arrested. Both, after a period of humiliation, arose to the second highest position. Uh, both were a blessing to the Gentiles. In both of their lives, God took bad things and turned them for good. I mean, there's so many similarities between uh, Joseph and Jesus that you'd think, man, Joseph is such a great guy. I mean, I'd name my kid Joseph. I wouldn't name him Judah. And God, God surely would pick Joseph to be the, the line through which Jesus would come. But here's the twist. It's Judah through whom Jesus comes. It's through, it's through the despicable son through whom Jesus comes. And there's a message in that for us. See, sin can do some horrible things to us. Sin can really mess up our lives. Sin can be very hurtful, but grace is healing. And you need to know this because many of you will, as you go through the story, will say, man, I'm much more like Judah than I, than I am like Joseph. And that's the truth. And you need grace just like I do. What is grace? It's getting what you don't deserve. It's getting something good that you did not earn. And God gives us grace, and he wants us to know that no matter how bad sin has messed up your life, no matter how deep you've gotten caught up in it, God still has a message of grace to you, and we'll see that in this story. But before we get to the message of grace, you need to see how sin works in Judah's life. So if you have a Bible, we're going to read through this whole story real quickly. Uh, It starts in verse 1. It happened that at the time Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adolamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again, bore a son, she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. We learn from this right off the bat that, uh, that one of the issues about sin is that you can, you'll be much more tempted to sin when you're not in community, when you separate yourself from the people of God. And Judah leaves his brothers. He goes down to this place where the Canaanites dominate. In fact, the, usually if the name has ite, like Adulamite, they're Canaanites. Hittite, Jebusite, all those. So he's down there. He meets, meets this guy named Hira, and Hira has a big influence on him. He probably shows him, say, hey, you ought to see the girls down here. These Canaanite girls, man, there's something else. So he sees a Canaanite girl, marries her. And God had warned his people, and he does all through the Bible, be careful who you link with. Because, because if they worship other gods, they will cause you to compromise your faith. 
Now, you may think, no, I'm going to be the strong one. I'm actually going to marry an unbeliever and bring them to the Lord. And while that happens on occasion, more often than not, it's the other way around. The person, the person who marries an unbeliever compromises and brings their level down to the level of the other person. And we see that play out in Scripture so often. When I was in high school, we had girls in the youth group who thought, oh, I'm going to date that guy on the football team because he's really cute, and I'm going to win him to the Lord. Right, right. You know, it's so hard to stay true to the Lord when you're not in community with other believers who hold to the same values and beliefs that you have. And you know where this happens? So, it's so obviously happening in our military. I hear so many stories of, of men and women that go off and they serve. They de- they're deployed in another place, and they become like the others. And even if they're a strong believer, there they are. They've got pornography on their phone. They're, 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 they're going to the bars and doing things there at the bars. There's, they're engaging in activities with foreign women. I mean, they're doing all these things because it's permissible in that culture. Or we'd be, we'd be shocked to say, say, why are you doing that? Well, that's, that's what you do when you're in the military. That's how you survive. And that's what Judah's doing. That's what you do when you're in Canaan. And they have these three, three kids, kind of odd names. The first one's name is Ur. Makes me think that when he was born, the doctor turned to, turned to dad and said, what, what do you want to name him? He goes, Ur, Ur, that's it, Ur. They don't do much better with the second one, Onan, Onan. He, his, his kids at school probably tease him. He's Onan the barbarian. So, and, and then, you, then you've got the last one, which I'm going to pronounce it Shayla, but it could be Sheila. I mean, these are, these are three interesting kids. And so it goes on with the story, and Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. And Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that his offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste his semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now, I probably should have cautioned some of you at the start of the sermon. This is like PG-13 stuff. Uh, this, you, you know, we, we make Bible story books for kids that have David and Goliath and, and Noah and the ark and Daniel and the lion's den, but we would never include a story like this in our kids' book. In fact, I'd say most of you probably never even heard this story before, though it would make a, a great primetime TV drama, wouldn't it? It's, it's building up already uh, what's happening here. But uh, you need to know a little bit about the background here because once you understand the background, you'll realize that, that sin is, is pretty certain when you seek pleasure apart from responsibility. When someone died, we don't know what Ur's problem was, but God, God took his life. And so Onan, and the brother, was supposed to marry Tamar and have children with her so those children would take on the legacy of Ur, his brother. And it's all about inheritance. See, in biblical times, there's... The property was passed on. This was true in the Israelite culture and even in the ancient Near East culture. Property was very valuable, and it would be divided among your children. And so if you have three boys, it'll be divided into three ways. But if one of them doesn't have children, that leaves only two. So if it's just Onan and Shelah, that's 50% each. If, if Ur has children, that makes the cut to 33% each. I lose 17% just like that. So Onan feels like, I don't want to help her have children. And what was practiced was called leveret marriage. 
And it, you can look it up online, but leveret marriage is a type of marriage in which the brother of a deceased man is obliged to marry his brother's widow. Uh, leveret marriage has been practiced by societies with a strong clan culture in which marriage outside the clan was forbidden. So repeatedly, Onan lays down with Tamar, his other wife now, but he will not consummate the, the action because he does not want her to get pregnant. And I don't know how he convinced her every time, like, okay, this time I'll do it. And then he didn't. And this time, no. And so what he's doing is, I'll, I'll enjoy this experience until it gets to the part where I'm going to have to have, there's going to be consequences. There'll be some responsibilities that come out of it, and I don't want to do that. And sin is so deceptive in that way that you can enjoy sin and not have any consequences from it. You can, you can mess around and, and not have to worry because if you use protection, you're not going to get someone pregnant, so, so there's nothing. And we don't realize that when God brings two people together, there's a union there, that two become one. It's not just a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing, too. It's a very big deal. And yet, so many areas of life, we think, I'm going to engage in this thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to indulge in this food or this drugs or alcohol or whatever it is, and surely it's not going to affect me consequences are going to come to bear on my life. And over and over again, we find them uh, catching up to us. There are consequences for our actions. And so the story goes on that uh, over the course of time, Jacob does not give that son, the third son, to Tamar. So in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears. He and his friend Hira the Adolamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. Judah is going to this place called Timnah to shear his sheep. But we're going to learn as the story goes, that's not the main reason why he went. He is going to pursue another activity. See, in pagan cultures, and this, the Canaanites were very big on this, they had cult prostitutes. It was almost a religious thing where you would have sex with a prostitute and it would bless the land. It would make it more fertile. And so that was kind of the, the mindset or the excuse to do this. So Judah is heading there to this place called Timnah with his Canaanite friend, Hira, with the mindset of, I'm going to find someone that I could engage in this activity with because my wife is deceased. And Tamar knows that and knows his real reason for going so that she goes and changes out of her widow's clothing into that of a prostitute and goes and positions herself at the entrance to the city because she wants to be the first one that he sees. And here's the truth about sin, that if you seek sin out, you are going to find it. If you're looking for it, you are going to find it. And the reason I bring this up is because so often we... We play around with sin like, you know, I don't, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do that. I, it's just one drink. It's just, I'm just going on the internet, just looking for stuff. I'm not going to go there. And before we know it, we're there. We fall into that place where sin grabs a hold of us. And see, I believe God's, God is saying that if you want to fight that sin, I'll be right there with you. If you really want to have victory over it, I, through my Holy Spirit, will help you have victory over that sin. But if you play this game with God, well, God, I'm going to... I'm going to go close to sin. I'm not going to sin, but I'm going to get really close to it. And if you don't want me to go further, then you need to stop me. And before long, we find ourselves just getting pulled into it. I mean, pornography is so big today. Can we talk about that just for a minute? Pornography is such a rampant thing today. And all you have to do is have a, a, a phone, a cell phone, or a computer, and it's right there. 
You don't have to go to a drugstore. You don't have to embarrass yourself. It's right there. It's downloadable. I mean, some of the things our kids are doing, uh, pictures they're sharing is just unbelievable because this is so prevalent today. And we think that we can get very close to it and not cross the line. It's like we're revving the engine saying, I'm not going to move an inch, but I'm revving the engine all the time. We eventually cross over. And that's what happens to sin. We eventually cross that line because we've, we've actually, in our heart, desired to do that very thing. And so Judah's in this position where he's on his way to Timnah, and he's going to find someone to have a relationship with. It says, when Judah saw her, meaning Tamar, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And he turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of her widowhood. Here's another truth about sin. It'll cost you far more than you've ever imagined. It is far greater, far more expensive than you've ever imagined. So when Judah sees this woman, he... uh, propositions her. And she says, well, you, you need to guarantee payment. He said, well, I don't have anything with me, but tell you what, I'll come back and bring a goat for you. And she said, um, what's your collateral? He says, what, what would you take as collateral? She says, I want your signet ring that's on the cord around your neck, and I want your staff. He says, okay, I'll give you that. And by the way, this is, this is very personal, that a, a rich person would have this ring on a cord that they would actually use to, to press into warm wax to, to seal a document. It was like their signature, their identifier. And so what he's basically doing is saying, here, you can take my driver's license. Hold on to that till I bring the goat for you. That's, pretty, that's a pretty big gamble. He has no guarantee he's ever going to see her again. Yet he's willing to make this foolish decision for one fling with her. And you know what? It's, it is amazing in our culture. You can go from people who've served as president of the United States to people who've been the heads of major corporations to people in the police force, in our educational system, even people who are pastors, who have, who have risked their reputation, laid it on the line for, a, for an encounter with a woman. It's amazing. It's like once, once that desire is stirred, men do not think clearly. And they take great risks. I mean, I mean just recently, Jeff Bezos, who's the CEO of Amazon, one of the richest men in the world. I think it's like, it's, it's many, many billions of dollars rich. He's got all, all these like $14 billion. And it was discovered that he had texts on his phone that were very, um, very romantic to the wife of a, of a good friend. And what was discovered is he's been having an affair with that woman. And now it's out in the national you know, news. And so he and his wife are now divorcing. They've been married 25 years. That's out the window because of this, this encounter with this other woman that was so tantalizing. And people do that. They'll, they'll, they'll risk 30 years of marriage, 50 years. I've seen 50 years of marriage risking it because of this other relationship that's come up. We pay a great cost, more than we ever imagined, when we allow sin to get a hold of us. Then it says, when, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adolamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of that place, where is the cold prostitute who was at the roadside 
at NAM, and they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has ever been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. So he sends a young goat, kind of ironic, because he sends a kid. I'm going to give you a kid. She goes, That's all I wanted. I only wanted a kid. Just different kind. And he sends this little, this, this goat to be delivered to her, just assuming that she's probably a, 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 a not sharp woman. She's going to give back my stuff and take the goat because the goat's more valuable. But they can't find her anywhere. She's gone. Now he's a little embarrassed, like, uh-oh, what do I do now? Let's just let it pass by. Let it pass by. And here's another truth about sin. Sin can make us think that we'll get away with it, that we can get away with it. Sin makes us think that if I just uh, don't talk about it, if I wipe the record off my computer, if I, if I make a few changes in my life, if I dress a little different, look a little different, uh, I'll just assume a new life, that's my past, it'll be forgotten. But you know, we live in a day and age now where a lot of things from the past are coming back to haunt people. That whole Me Too uh, movement last year dug up a lot of stuff on people that have been hidden for decades. Just this week in in our region, Pikes Peak region, a 73-year-old man in Monument who had sent in his DNA to get tested on one of these ancestry sites, they linked to a murder in California in 1973 of an 11-year-old girl. And what had happened was when they tra- traced this man's story, that he lived in California at that time, shortly after that murder occurred, he moved to Florida, changed his name, and three years ago moved to Monument. His neighbors said he was an upstanding citizen, a man of strong faith, And yet, he's been arrested and may get the death penalty because what happened six decades ago or five decades ago is coming back now to to haunt him. There's a verse in the Old Testament. Uh, I'm going to jump ahead to a verse I had later, but I'm going to share it here. A verse from the book of Numbers where God says, Behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Isn't that kind of frightening? And here's why. Paul says this in the New Testament, the Lord will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. God has a way of exposing things that we want to hold in darkness. And I can't tell you how many stories I've read this past year of church leaders who are not willing to face up with things of their past and now are being embarrassed, humiliated because of the the charges brought against them that they cannot defend. Many have lost their positions in their churches and their reputation now is, is tarnished because of that. Well, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out! Let her be burned! And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And Judah identified them and said, oh, Oh my goodness, she is more righteous than I. Since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. He is overcome now with this shame and guilt, which is what sin does. When you hide it, it finally gets exposed, you are caught. And he wants to burn her. You know, she's, she's showing after three months that she's, her tummy's getting bigger, and the whispers around the community are, Tamara, who's this widow, is pregnant, and she says some guy got her pregnant. Doesn't, doesn't, says she doesn't know his name, 
but she has some identify, identification of the man. So, well, let's see what it is. And when she brings it out and shows it's, it's Judah's signet ring and the cord and his staff, he can't hide anymore. He's caught red-handed, and he's embarrassed. And he says, oh, she's more righteous than I. Because I promised to give her my other son, and I refused to do that. And God's called me out on that one. Now, I'm not justifying what Tamar has done through this whole story, because she's not the perfect person either. Both of them are at fault. But she's pregnant now, and Judah will be a father to that child, but he will not sleep with her ever again. He's going to take responsibility for this child, which is where the story gets real interesting, because it says, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and she was in labor, and one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, what a breach you've made for yourself. Therefore, his name is called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Now, if you just read that and closed your Bible, you went, okay, that's interesting. Another one of these twin stories, but that's interesting. One starts to come out, goes back in. This guy getting Perez calls out. But here's where the story gets really interesting. If you were Jewish, you would know where this story goes. Perez is, has a family line that traces down ultimately to David and to Jesus. That it is through this offspring of this awkward relationship that a son is born that becomes the family line through who Jesus is born. And here's what you need to know. I believe this whole story was inserted in the Bible here is because you and I are much less like Joseph and much more like Judah. And much like Judah, we need to know that our story, as, as wild as it is, as twisted as it is, can be made beautiful by the Lord, that his grace can prevail. See, when you go through the book of Ruth, at the very end of the book of Ruth, it gives the generations of Perez. It says, it says Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, Jesse fathered David. The greatest king of Israel came from the line of Perez. Isn't that amazing? But what's more is this. Boaz, Boaz's mother was a gal named Rahab. Do you know who Rahab was? Rahab was a prostitute that lived in Jericho. When the spies came into Jericho and and needed protection, she protected them. And she said, if I save you from my own people, will you protect me when you come and take the land? And they said, we will. They saved Rahab's land. Rahab ends up marrying a guy named Salmon. They have a son named Boaz. Boaz marries Ruth. Now, here's a story about Ruth. Ruth is a Moabitess. She's not Jewish. She, she lives in a land called Moab. Do you know where Moab came from, the people of Moab? You can go all the way back in history to where, uh, this, is a, this is a lot of stuff if you're new to the Bible, but, but when, when Abraham brought Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah, when God destroyed that, those cities by fire, Lot escaped, his wife died, but he took his two daughters and hid in a city or hid in a little village. And while they were there, the girls realized, we'll never get married and never have a family. So I don't recommend this. They got their father drunk, slept with him. They both got pregnant. One of the girls had offspring, and, and the family of offspring became known as the Ammonites. The other daughter, her children and offspring became known as the Moabites. Ruth traces her history back to an ancestral relationship with a daughter and Lot. And yet here's the interesting thing. This is the line of Jesus. This is the story of Jesus. 
Ruth and her background and Boaz and his mom and comes through David and Tamar and all these things all weave together so that when a man named Matthew opens up the New Testament, the very first words of the New Testament, now know this, typically in a genealogy, they did not list the women. It was just a list of the dads. But not so with Matthew's genealogy. He wants the reader to know the significant names. These are the names that you'd probably hide in your family tree. He doesn't hide them. Why? Because Matthew experienced the grace. He was a tax collector. He had sinned. He had ripped people off. And he found grace through Jesus. And so when he writes the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew 1, he says, This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab father of Nashon, Nashon father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Now that's Bathsheba. That's another person who, in a, in a Relationship gone wrong. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then their child becomes part of the family tree. All this messy stuff in Jesus' family line to tell us that no matter how you screwed up your life, no matter how bad your family has been before you, you can make a decision to surrender to the grace of Jesus. And he can make your life beautiful. He can turn the story around and make it beautiful. Because here's the truth. Paul says it in Romans 5, verse 20. While sin increases, grace abounds even more. In other words, no matter how bad you sin, God has even more grace to give you. But here's the truth. Grace, grace is only needed by sinners. If you're living the perfect life, you don't need grace. But if you live a sinful life, you need it. You need grace. Because we don't want justice. We don't want what we deserve. You know, if a policeman pulls you over, do you want, do you want justice or do you want Grace. You want grace. Please, please don't arrest me. Please don't give me a ticket. What are you going to do when you stand before God and he sees the sin in your life that you tried to hide and you hang your head in shame? Hopefully you'll say, I'm going to trust in Jesus, your son, who died on the cross for my sins. Because that's what he did. He died for your sins so you could be free to walk in grace. And so I'm going to ask you to stand right now. And for, for all of us to close our eyes, and even bow our heads, and I'm going to ask you to say a prayer with me, especially if you've never, ever received the grace that washes away sin. To say a prayer like this, dear Jesus, thank you for coming for me, for dying on that cross. I admit that I'm a sinner in need of your grace, that I have made many bad choices in my life. I've gotten too close to sin, and it's grabbed me, it's pulled me in. And so many times I feel the shame and the guilt over it, but I thank you. And believe that you died on that cross for my sin. That you rose from the dead. And today I confess you as Savior and Lord of my life. And Lord, I want to die to myself. And I want to live for you from this day forward. Thank you so much, Jesus, that you can take a, a story that's all twisted. A story that's so dark. And shine your light in it. And make it beautiful for your glory. Nobody can do that but you. And so we praise you for it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. For some of you, today is a day of new beginning. I'm going to ask our prayer partners to be up here. And if you've prayed that prayer, maybe for the very first time, that you want to surrender to the grace of God, 
that we want to pray with you. We want to set up your time for you to visualize and be baptized and say, I am fully surrendered to Jesus. I am dying so he can live through me. For those of us who've slid into sin, be deceived. And church people, we can fall into the same patterns of Judah. Today's a day to return to grace. Say, thank you, God, for grace. That your grace is greater than my sin. No matter how dark my sin is, no matter how big it is to me, no matter how great it is in the eyes of others, your grace is even greater. And so let's praise the God who gives us that great grace. Let's just surrender our hearts to him today.